Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances, whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death. We all want to know what happened next. To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nine Days in July is a production of iHeartRadio and Tradecraft Studios in association with High Five Content. On May 25th, 1961, just four months after he assumed the presidency, John F. Kennedy stood before a joint session of Congress and said the following. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. Think about it. Less than three weeks after launching the first American into space, a trip that lasted only 15 minutes, the president went before Congress and charged the country with landing on the moon before the end of the decade. And why? So that we could wallop the Russians. Recognizing the head start obtained by the Soviets and recognizing the likelihood that they will exploit this lead for some time to come, In still more impressive successes, we nevertheless are required to make new efforts on our own. For while we cannot guarantee that we shall one day be first, we can guarantee that any failure to make this effort will make us last. Kennedy is inspiring and pragmatic. He wants America to go to the moon. But he recognizes that the colossal technology, infrastructure, hardware, and workforce necessary to make it happen does not exist. America would be starting from scratch, and it was going to be expensive. Let it be clear that I am asking the Congress and the country to accept a firm commitment to a new course of action, a course which will last for many years and carry very heavy costs. If we are to go only halfway or reduce our sights in the face of difficulty, in my judgment, it would be better not to go at all. Apollo would be bigger than anything NASA had ever attempted by several orders of magnitude, requiring the most significant commitment of peacetime resources and innovation the country had ever seen. There is no sense in desiring that the United States take an affirmative position in outer space unless we are prepared to do the work and bear the burdens to make it successful. 
Kennedy is down to brass tacks now, and he's not above begging. This decision demands a major national commitment of scientific and technical manpower, materiel and facilities, and the possibility of their diversion from other important activities where they're already thinly and spread. In bringing it home, Kennedy reminds his audience of the stakes. Finally, if we are to win the battle that is now going on around the world between freedom and tyranny, now it is time to take longer strides. Time for a great new American enterprise. Time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement, which in many ways may hold the key to our future on Earth. Freedom and tyranny. For most Americans, at least in retrospect, Apollo was about science, technology, and exploration. But not Kennedy. For the president, it was about stopping communism before it swallowed the planet whole. The stakes were literally saving the free world. But as we will learn this hour, there were many more Americans who didn't give a damn about either of those two motivations. And with very good reason. It's July 18th, 1969, day three of the Apollo 11 mission. This is Apollo Control, 46 hours, 28 minutes, ground elapsed time. A little more than a half hour remaining in the crew sleep period. Members of the green team of flight controllers headed up by Prime Flight Director Cliff Charlesworth are coming into the control room at this time. And at each console, the handover is taking place from the uh, black watch. Have you ever stopped to consider the gargantuan undertaking that the Apollo project represented? Pulling off Kennedy's audacious vision required hundreds of thousands of people, tens of thousands of companies, and tens of billions of dollars. On paper, there's no way that Apollo should have worked. It should have been too big, too unwieldy, too time-consuming, and too expensive. And yet, against all odds, in spite of tragic accidents, political hatchet jobs, and public protests, the United States pulled it off. But before we look into the army that was required to get Apollo off the ground, let's listen in as Bruce McCandless in Mission Control rouses our crew. Good morning, Houston, Apollo 11. How's your green team this morning? Just a quiet night? Yeah, it was a very quiet night uh, down here. I've got the morning news here if you're interested, over. Yeah, we sure are. We're ready to copy and comment. Is that 2.30 there? Uh, Roger. Buzz is pointing out that if it's 2.30 in the afternoon in Houston, this can't be called the morning news. From St. Petersburg, Florida, comes a radio report from the Norwegian explorer Thor Heyerdahl, which said that the crew of his papyrus boat, the Ra, will sail into Bridgetown, Barbados, despite damage from heavy seas. Thor Heyerdahl was a Norwegian explorer who wanted to prove that ancient peoples were capable of making epic sea voyages and contacting far-flung cultures. He constructed a boat made from papyrus, just like the ancient Egyptians did, and attempted to cross the Atlantic Ocean. However, the Ra would sink before reaching its destination. Thankfully, the entire crew was rescued, and a year from now, Thor will build Ra 2 and successfully complete the journey from Morocco to Barbados, a fitting terrestrial echo to Apollo 11's extraordinary stellar journey. And in Corby, England, an Irishman, John Coyle, has won the world's porridge eating championship by consuming 23 bowls of instant oatmeal in a 10-minute time limit from a field of 35 other competitors. Over. I'd like to enter Aldrin in the oatmeal eating contest next time. Be pretty good at that. He's 20 up here. I'm still eating. 
He's on his ninth As you may have already guessed, Mission Control is curating the news, choosing only stories designed to bring a smile to the faces of three astronauts racing far away from everything and everyone they love. But the truth is, all is not well back home. Spanning Apollo 11's nine-day mission, the streets of York, Pennsylvania, will become the site of a race war after a 17-year-old African-American boy is shot by a white gang looking to stir up trouble. Soon, black and white mobs clash violently across the city. The next day, three police officers will be shot, and one, a 22-year-old rookie who's only been on the force for 10 months, will be killed. The mayor will declare a state of emergency and flood the streets with state troopers to begin restoring order. Or so he thinks. Angry at the death of one of their own, the city police officers will begin telling white gangs they need to protect their homes and shoot any blacks they come across. Local cops even pass out ammunition. One of those bullets may have killed a 27-year-old black woman and mother of two from South Carolina, who is visiting her sister when the violence begins consuming the city. She and her family are returning from a fishing trip when barricaded streets force them to drive through a white neighborhood where several men open fire on the car, hitting her in the chest and killing her. Why do I bring this up? As the sun sets in the 1960s, race relations threaten to tear this country apart. And the systemic suppression of African-Americans even intersects profoundly with the Apollo 11 mission, as we will learn today. The country about to land on the moon seems incapable of solving its most fundamental problems back home. As the political turmoil at home rages on and our boys continue their trek toward the moon, let's take a look at how NASA made the impossible possible. The Apollo program dwarfs any other engineering project ever undertaken by humanity. Previous ventures like the Manhattan Project and the construction of the Panama Canal pale in comparison. I'm Bill Berry, and I'm the NASA chief historian. So over the course of the 1960s, the, the official number is $25 billion in 1960s money. That's a huge amount of money. And uh, 400,000 people worked on the project, and 20,000 different U.S. companies across the United States were uh, subcontractors or in some way, shape, or form. In 1961, the year Kennedy kicked Apollo off, NASA spent about $1 million on the program. Just five years later, it was spending roughly the same amount every three hours. NASA's slice of the federal budget at the time was about 5.5%. If the national budget were a dollar, NASA was consuming more than a nickel. Adjusted for 2019, the Apollo program cost $288 billion. Only the Vietnam War was more expensive. At the time of Kennedy's charge, NASA was just 8,000 employees scattered around a handful of small facilities but Apollo's scope made them instantly obsolete. NASA needed a lot more people and a lot more space. The first priority was a command center from which to run the entire program. They realized they needed a much larger facility and the decisions made to located in Houston, so that's the, the birth of the Johnson Space Flight Center. At the time, the facility was known as the Manned Space Flight Center. This was to be the home of mission control. Future manned spaceflight missions to the moon and perhaps the planets will be commanded from this control room of the Mission Control Center at NASA's Manned Spacecraft Center, 22 miles southeast of Houston, Texas. It was built on 1,600 acres of cattle grazing land donated by Rice University, the same Rice University where Kennedy uttered these famous words. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. 
Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Next up was a place to launch the rockets from. People have been using the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station down there on the coast of Florida, uh, but they realized that for, you know, for Apollo, they're going to need a much bigger facility. So the Kennedy Space Center, what's now the Kennedy Space Center, is built next to Cape Canaveral, uh, a huge facility of its own. One of NASA's major installations devoted to achieving the goals of the nation's space programs is the John F. Kennedy Space Center, launch site for the Apollo Saturn V. It would not be named the Kennedy Space Center until after the president's death. At this time, it is the Launch Operations Center. To give you some context of just how much bigger and more powerful the Saturn was going to be than anything that came before it, the launch escape system that sat on the very top of the Saturn V to yank the command module free in an emergency was more powerful than the entire Mercury Redstone that launched the first American into outer space. The abort signal triggers separation of the module from the launch vehicle. Simultaneously, the launch escape motor and pitch control motor ignite, accelerating the command module away from the launch vehicle. NASA also needed a place to build the Saturn V. They decided to build a test facility in the middle of the swamps down on the south coast, Marshall Space Flight Center. Why in the middle of a swamp? Building and testing rockets tends to be, well, noisy. And so NASA goes from being a sleepy 8,000 or so person organization with a relatively small budget and grows over fourfold by the mid-60s. You've got over 38,000 employees working for NASA and all these multiple facilities, uh, all brand spanking new that are all built all across the south of the United States. As these various centers were being built, NASA turned its attention to even more fundamental problems. Exactly how was America going to get to the moon? The problem is really quite simple. Find the best path to get from point A to point B. But of course, this is a great oversimplification. There are three options. Uh, direct descent, where you take a big rocket, launch it to the moon, the whole thing lands on the moon, and the whole thing comes back again. This is the model made popular by classic sci-fi films of the 1950s. When the moon monsters, under the direction of Retting, ruthless dictator of the moon, scheme to invade the Earth and have your ray gun set up ready to blast them, this time you must not fail. And they decided, well, there's another alternative here. We could build a spaceship in Earth orbit. We could launch pieces of it so that we don't have to build such a big rocket on Earth. So that's Earth orbit rendezvous. Werner von Braun, the ex-Nazi rocket scientist who designed the Saturn V, preferred this option. A voyage around the moon must be made in two phases. A rocket ship taking off from the Earth's surface will use almost all the fuel it can carry just to attain a speed great enough to balance the pull of gravity. However, if we can refuel the ship in this orbit with fuel brought up by cargo rocket ships, it can set out on the second phase, the trip around the moon and back. And there's this other idea out there called lunar orbit rendezvous, where you build you know, a rocket, you send it to the moon, and it's like a big cruise ship. It pulls into the harbor, and then the passengers get off on a smaller you know, dinghy and run into the shore to go do their visits and then come back out again. The problem was, no one at NASA liked this last idea. Well, almost no one. John Hubalt was convinced that lunar orbit rendezvous was the only way NASA would successfully meet Kennedy's vision. The idea of using LOR, lunar orbit rendezvous, as a way to, to go into the moon appealed to me tremendously. I knew, however, that it would meet with much opposition. People, in fact, would probably think I was crazy. 
Hubert is a really interesting character. He was an engineer at the Langley Research Center where they were looking at questions about you know, orbital mechanics. Hubble really sort of grabbed this idea, mathematically this makes the most sense, and he basically championed that idea. The reason no one at NASA liked Hubble's option is because it required the astronauts to dock their spacecraft 250,000 miles away. Remember, this is half a decade before Project Gemini proved it was even possible in Earth orbit, so this terrified NASA's engineers. And so Hubble was sidelined. He may not have been high-ranking or well-connected, but he was tenacious. And so he jumped the NASA chain of command. He really put his career on the line by being a real pest about it, you know, going over people's heads, sending letters to the deputy administrator at NASA and other things that, uh, you know, could have gotten him fired. Hubble argued that for direct ascent to work, they'd need a rocket even larger and more expensive than the proposed Saturn V. And Earth orbit rendezvous required multiple launches. But he kept at it and eventually pounding away on it, you know, people realized, well, well, you know, maybe this rendezvous thing around the moon isn't so bad. And look at the math on this. We can actually do this mission with one Saturn V launch. You know, eventually it wins out and Hubble becomes sort of the hero of the story, largely because he was smart enough to do it and brave enough to take on the powers that be to, to push the idea. The accomplishment of lunar orbit rendezvous is a vital portion of the Apollo lunar landing missions. The next question was, what would these spacecraft look like and who would build them? Getting a very good view of the work going on in the uh, command and service module tunnel in preparation for the ingress to the lunar module. But first, let's check in with Apollo 11 currently 175,000 nautical miles away from Earth, where the astronauts are preparing to open up the lunar module for the very first time. They're filming the whole thing and beaming it back to Charlie Duke in Mission Control. We're really getting a great picture here, Eleven. Okay, drug removal is coming next. Once removal of the drogue is completed, they will have access to the uh, lamb hatch and be able to go into the tunnel. The drogue is part of the mechanism used to dock the two spacecraft. To enter the lunar module, Neil must first remove the drogue as it blocks the narrow tunnel connecting the two ships. 11 Houston looks like it's pretty crowded in there with that drogue, over. Oh, it's not pretty bad. This uh, TV cable is getting in the way. The only problem, Charlie, is these TV stagehands don't know where they stand. One guess who the guy making the jokes is? Of course it's Michael Collins. If it sounds like I've been making fun of Michael Collins, think again. In a very real way, He's the most accessible of our crew. Neil and Buzz are always so straight-laced. Both were described in their day as squares. Michael's much more, well, down to earth. Well, he doesn't really have a union card there. We can't really complain too much, I guess. Yeah, we're about to open the hatch now. Right. We don't see anything loose up there. Well, great. Looks good to us. This is the first time that anyone, other than the technicians who built her, has climbed inside the LEM. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. 
you can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. During the Apollo mission, this vehicle, the Lunar Module, will take two men and their scientific instruments to the surface of the moon. While there, it will serve as command post and communication center. And when the astronauts finish their exploration, it will take them back to the orbiting command module for the return trip to Earth. In late July of 1962, NASA invited nearly a dozen companies to bid on the lunar module design. The winning concept came from the aircraft manufacturer, the Grumman Corporation. These are the guys who built the F-9 Panther that Neil flew in Korea. Later, they designed the most beautiful American fighter jet to ever take to the sky, the F-14 Tomcat. I'm standing on the floor of plant number five at the Grumman Aircraft Engineering Corporation in Bethpage, New York. The lunar modules, or LEMS for short, were designed, assembled, and tested at Grumman's Long Island facility in New York. Mike Lisa was a Grumman environmental test engineer. When I went to the interview to Grumman, they said, you're going to be working on the LEM. I go, LEM? You're kidding. I said, no. I said, oh my gosh. I was thrilled day one. Day one. None of the engineers at Grumman had ever built anything like the LEM before. No one had. The LEM was for use on the moon. It would never taste Earth's atmosphere. It would live and die in the vacuum of space. As such, unlike its gumdrop-shaped sibling, the command module, the LEM didn't need to be aerodynamic. Once you get 250,000 miles away, there's no atmosphere, obviously. It doesn't have to be sleek. Doesn't have to look like a Porsche. Because of that, it would never be described as beautiful. Instead of smooth, sleek sides, it was functional, bristling with sharp edges, antennas, weird bulges, and clusters of thrusters. Appropriately enough, 
it looked like something alien. The thing has a face, eyes, nose, even a mouth. We called it the bug. It's true. It was a spider. It was the bug. The lem evolved a lot. First, it was roughly capsule-shaped. Still later, it resembled a helicopter cockpit with large, curved windows. Then someone got out a calculator and added up how much it would weigh, and that was the end of that. The LEM had to be light, or else it would never get off the moon. Grumman's engineers soon became obsessed with taking weight off. The single massive window was ditched, and in its place, two small triangular-shaped windows were substituted. Glass is heavy. Five landing legs offered the best possible stability, but that was one too many. Now it was only four. At one point in time on the LEM, they actually had seats, and they said, now get these things out of here. Grumman proposed having the astronauts climb out of the vehicle by using a rope ladder or even, at one point, rappel down the side via a rope. Ultimately, they compromised on an aluminum ladder. Throughout the different phases of its design and construction, Grumman built full-sized wooden mock-ups for the NASA personnel to tour, equipment to be test-fitted, and even space-suited astronauts to try out. Buzz and Neil had put on the, the backpack. And what happened was when they tried to get through the round opening, it was beating the heck out of the backpack. So it instantly was a redesign. I mean, it was like, stop everything. This thing has to become rectangular. The LEM has two sections, the ascent stage from which the astronauts operated the craft and the descent stage with its spider legs and compartments for all of their equipment. This is the bit that gets left on the moon. The engine on the descent stage is the most sophisticated ever designed. It's powerful enough to get the LEM down to the lunar surface, but it can also allow the LEM to hover like a helicopter while the astronauts choose a suitable landing spot. All that gold foil wrapped around the descent stage is mylar insulation. It reflects hot sunlight away from the sensitive equipment. Beneath the foil is the craft's metal hull. At some places, it's the thickness of only three inches of kitchen aluminum foil. But once pressurized, it was remarkably strong. Think about it in terms of a soda can. After you've finished your soda, it's fairly easy to pierce the side of its aluminum skin but it takes a lot more work to do so when the contents are under pressure. It's the same idea here. Once the LEM was pressurized in the vacuum of space, it was much stronger than how it was back in Grumman's labs, where a misplaced foot or a fallen screwdriver could have easily punctured the hull. Never in history had a flying machine gone into service without a comprehensive test flight. But when it came to landing on the moon, there was no other way to do it, which meant that Mike and his team had their work cut out for them. It was their job to stress test every individual part that went into the LEM, not once, but thousands of times. I need you to picture a huge speaker, a regular, ordinary speaker, except that this speaker is going to be about 15 foot in diameter. Mike's vibration machines are basically speakers. They would mount the LEM on top of these shakers to simulate the vibrations experienced during takeoff and all the other phases of the mission. It was shaking the LEM to the point where it was, uh, it would fall apart. I mean, we'd actually introduce so many G-forces that uh, we would knock things off of the limb just to see if we can break it. We had to prove that that thing was going to make it to the moon and back to Earth in one piece. On another test, they rotated the limb upside down and shook it to see if anything would come off. And lo and behold, out comes a nut, a plain, ordinary nut. It hit the ground, and the NASA inspector was there. And he pulled the plug on us. He stopped us for an entire week. And all of those units had to be inspected to a point where you wouldn't believe. Mike and his colleagues were obsessed with ensuring that everything they touched was perfect. You know, three folks' life depend on this. And you want it to be flawless. 
The importance that lingered on everybody's mind was the safety of bringing these guys out and getting them back. It wasn't an easy job. We worked 12 hours a day, 365 days a year. We never stopped. I remember taking a week off of my honeymoon. I remember that. Other than that, no vacations, no no nothing. I couldn't wait to get to work. I, I knew this was going to be a big thing in our life. I mean, to be a part of that history is absolutely incredible. I really loved doing that work. Mike was a new father when he watched the landing from the living room of his house. The same house, in fact, where he lives today. I was sitting... Right here in this living room, as a matter of fact, with my black and white television, the little baby upstairs crying. And uh, when I finally saw that thing hit the ground, I couldn't believe it. I, I tell you, I, I, I had goosebumps. It would, you almost get a tear out of it. It was terrible. It was incredible to see all our work finally coming to fruition. It was great. Today, Mike volunteers his time at the Cradle of Aviation Museum in Garden City as a docent talking to people about the LEM he helped build. Now that Neil and Buzz have opened her up, let's take a look inside, shall we? As you can see, there is not a lot of space in here, just room enough for two men to stand side by side. They each have a window angled down toward the ground. In the front there, you can see joysticks, altimeters, a bunch of knobs, switches, and circuit breakers. The hatch to get out to the moon is below these consoles, just here, at their feet. And that hole directly above your head, that's the hatch connecting the LEM to the command module. The lunar module, crammed with instrumentation, communications equipment, and propulsion, all needed for the important job of jetting two men down to and away from the surface of the moon. In all, it took an estimated 9,000 engineers and $2.4 billion to design and build the lunar module. That's billion with a B. There are many at this time of history who felt that that money could have been better spent. America was losing about 50 men every day in Vietnam. Some of the country's most inspiring leaders were being felled by assassins' bullets. Campus protests and street riots were breaking out across the country. And according to the U.S. Census, 31% of African Americans were living in poverty. In an era of intense racial discrimination, African Americans found themselves trapped between America's technological abilities and its social injustice. America, it seemed, would rather spend hundreds of billions of dollars on war and petty political one-upmanship than actually improving the lives of its citizens. The plight of African Americans at this time inspired Gil Scott Heron to pen these words in the song, Whitey on the Moon. I can't pay no doctor bills, but Whitey's on the moon. 10 years from now, I'll be paying still while Whitey's on the moon. You know, the man just up my rent last night, cause Whitey's on the moon. No hot water, no toilets, no lights, but Whitey's on the moon. 9-11, we have a good view of the window there. Uh, looks like the sun's apparently coming through uh, the shade. We're back in the lem. Neil and Buzz have the camera with them, and they're showing the world what it looks like inside. Now, let me show you if you look in the other way. Buzz turns the camera around, shooting back into the command module. Hey, that's a great shot right there. Guess that's uh, Neil and Mike. Better be, anyway. Remember when Mike Lisa mentioned that they'd yanked the LEM seats to save on weight? Well, they swapped them out with tethered restraints so that Neil and Buzz didn't float around inside the spacecraft. Buzz decides to try them on early. But without being in his bulky pressure suit, they don't quite have the same effect. Yeah. Restraints in here do a pretty good job of pulling my pants down. 
Roger. We haven't quite got that before the 50 million TV audience yet. Careful, Buzz. This is a family show. Eleven, that's real good uh, camera work. Probably the most unusual position a cameraman's ever hit, hanging by his toes from a tunnel and taking a picture upside down. Eleven, uh, you got a pretty big audience. It's live in the U.S. It's going live to Japan, Western Europe, and much of South America. Appreciate the great show. Hello there, Ashley. Poor Michael. He's feeling left out. Meanwhile, Buzz is fantasizing about pushing off from one end of the LEM and sailing all the way through to the other side of the command module. The uh, traverse from the bottom of the LEM uh, to the uh, aft bulkhead of the command module must be about, oh, 16, 20 feet. Most interesting to uh, contemplate just pushing off from one and uh, bounding on into the other vehicle all the way through the tunnel. Raj, must be some experience. Is Collins going to go in and look around? We're willing to let him go, but he hasn't come up with the price of the ticket yet. Right. I'd uh, advise him to keep his hands off the switches. While Buzz and Neil are busy in the LEM, let's check out Michael's domain, the command module. After all, this is where the lion's share of our podcast takes place. Cockpit, crew quarters, command center. When America's three astronauts travel to the moon, they'll use the Apollo command module for all these things. And of the three modules that make up the spacecraft, this is the only one that will come back. The command and service modules were built by North American Aviation. This is the company that built the P-51 Mustang, one of the most extraordinary planes to come out of World War II, Buzz's F-86 Sabre, and Neil's X-15 rocket plane. So yeah, these guys know a thing or two about building extraordinary machines. Chuck Lowry was working for North American Aviation in Columbus, Ohio, designing airplanes when he was given the opportunity to begin working on a new program that NASA was calling Apollo. I was invited to to move from Columbus, Ohio to California to be in charge of the landing system, the parachutes. I jumped at the chance to do that. Not many people in the early 60s believed a moon landing was even possible. Chuck remembers being at church one night shortly before they made the move to California. There was a leader speaking to a group of people, and he said something like, uh, our crazy government, now they, they say we're going to go to the moon, go, going to put people there. How many of you really believe that we're going to put people on the moon? Of course, I raised my hand, and I looked around, and my hand was the only one up. And uh, I looked over at my wife sitting next to me, and her hand was not up. So at that point, not many people in the population really believed we were going to do that. I did. Chuck and his colleagues put in a lot of hours. We had so many heart attacks, so many divorces among the, you know, the workers, and it it was a hard job, but it was a thrilling job, and uh, I don't regret a minute of it. All right, listener, why don't you sit here in the center seat? This is Michael's seat. It's going to give you the best view. Almost every inch of the interior wall space is filled with switches, dials, and gauges. Some are similar to those found in modern jet planes, but others are new, designed for the requirements of spaceflight. That seven-foot-wide, three-foot-tall, crescent-shaped panel directly in front of you is divided into three sections, one for each of the astronauts. On the left is the panel for Neil, the mission commander. He has the primary flight controls, which govern things like the command module's altitude, velocity, and attitude. The center panel is the command module pilots. 
Michael controls the guidance and navigation computer, propulsion, the environmental system, and thruster controls. On the right is the lunar module pilot's panel. This isn't Buzz's ship, but since he's going to be in that seat for roughly eight of the nine days, he gets to cover electricity, battery, fuel cells, and comms. In all, there are 556 switches in the command module and 24 separate instruments. So, yeah, this is one complicated spacecraft. Then when you want to uh, move around, you can stow a couch and you can go down below. There's a lower equipment bay, which, of course, a lot of storage lockers. There are six equipment bays in all. They house everything from guidance and navigation equipment, medical supplies, survival gear, a food locker, drinking water, a waste management system, clothes, tools, cameras, fire extinguishers, and a dozen other mission-critical supplies. Now, if you look up, you see the uh, tunnel, which is what you use to go up and exit the command module and go into the lunar module. The command module has five small windows, two at eye level for Buzz and Neil, two forward-facing ones that are used primarily for rendezvous and docking, and a fifth on the hatch directly above you. You see those little black squares all over the walls? That's Velcro. In zero-G, where things tend to float away, it's really nice to have something to stick things to. Everything from your checklists to small tools and even your food pouches. If all of this sounds cramped, it is. The command module is just over 10 and a half feet in height, with a diameter of just under 13 feet, barely over 200 square feet in volume. The middle seat used by the pilot of the command module can be folded back to provide working space and give the crew a chance to stretch. Luckily, the couches the guys sit in can not only be reconfigured for sleep, but the center one, the one you're in, can be completely broken down to allow them to stretch out as well as access the telescope and the sextant. Despite all of the technological wizardry aboard the command module, some of the astronauts' equipment is relatively unchanged in 200 years. Mariners aboard 18th century sailing ships use sextants to chart their course using the stars. The astronauts on Apollo 11 use theirs to do exactly the same thing. In 1865, the French novelist Jules Verne, one of the founding fathers of science fiction, wrote From Earth to the Moon. In it, a group of post-Civil War engineers build a giant cannon in, well, where else, Florida. With that cannon, they shoot a giant bullet-shaped projectile carrying three people to the moon. How prophetically awesome is that? The engineers in Verne's story named the cannon Columbiad. Neil Buzz and Michael have dubbed this command module Columbia in its honor. The first time I had butterflies in my stomach because of uh, apprehension about systems working was Apollo 7, because that was the first manned flight. A lot riding on that flight. The whole program was riding and lives were riding on that flight. And by the time we got to Apollo 11, uh, it was pretty routine. But that sort of confidence comes only after years of success and hard work. Chuck would go on to work on every Apollo mission, and even today is a consultant on the Orion spacecraft, which will be taking astronauts back to the moon in a couple years. I'm immensely proud of the fact that I worked on Apollo from the first to the last, the success of it, uh, what it really meant to this nation, what it meant to the world, and the farther I go in life, the more uh, pride I take in that. In all, the total cost for developing and building Apollo's command and service modules was $3.8 billion. That is a lot of money. Between the lunar module and the command module, taxpayers shelled out around $6.2 billion. That's $62.5 billion in today's dollars. And it is worth asking, was it worth it? 
Many people today bemoan the lack of public support for space exploration. They point back to the halcyon days of the Apollo program, when everyone was rooting for NASA and support for the moon landing was universal. Except those days never existed. Sure, 50 years later, the Apollo program is regarded as an unqualified success. But that's not how it was viewed at the time. In fact, the majority of scientists felt that NASA was moving with reckless speed and that the money and minds going towards space meant that other critical scientific pursuits were being sidelined. And the public agreed. NASA's Bill Berry. In polls throughout the 1960s, when people were asked the question, is it a priority to you and should we be spending money on sending humans to the moon? That poll question never got above 50% support except for one week in the 1960s, and that was the week we landed on the moon. Um, so generally speaking, the majority you know, of, of Americans uh, you know, uh, were not in favor of uh, a major moon landing program. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances and the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back on Apollo 11, exactly two days and nine hours from their launch, 
the guys are wrapping up their television broadcast. The consensus is that the Earth appears much smaller today. It appears now that we have a view of Earth out the window. 11 Houston, if that's not the Earth, we're in trouble. You can notice the difference between yesterday and today. This is as large an image as we can give you. Project's distinctly smaller uh, year now, 177,000 miles out, over. And Charlie, I'd like to say uh, hello to all uh, my fellow scouts and scatters at uh, Farragut State Park in Idaho. They have the National Jamboree there this week, and Apollo 11 like to send them best wishes. That was Neil. Other than Apollo 15's Jim Irwin, every single one of the Apollo moonwalkers were Boy Scouts. And Neil and Charlie Duke, the two people chatting here, achieved the rank of Eagle Scout. And uh, we're going to turn our TV monitor off now uh, for a short bit while we have some other work to do. Uh, Apollo 11 signing off. Roger 11. Thank you very much. That was one of the greatest shows we've ever seen. We sure appreciate it. Over. In all, their TV transmission lasted just over an hour and a half. And in that time, they've traveled more than 2,000 miles. Now it's time to get back to work transferring equipment they're going to need on the moon from the command module to the lunar module. As Neil and Buzz work, astronaut Owen Garrett has commandeered the Capcom microphone to let Neil know that Mission Control is enjoying a little snack. Uh, 11 Houston, a uh, little information to you there, CDR. We've all taken a momentary uh, brief respite from our work here to have a bite of special uh, moon cheese that has, I understand, has been sent to us directly from uh, Wapakoneska. Wow. <laughs> Your own hometown. Over. We can't pronounce it either. I think you'll enjoy that. They make a fine brand of cheese. Uh, Roger there, and I'll polish up the grammar for the next trip. <laughs> In a little less than three hours, uh, we'll pass a milestone of sorts as the spacecraft passes into the lunar sphere of influence. At that point, the uh, spacecraft will be under the dominant influence of the moon's gravity. Neil and Buzz finish their work and seal up the LEM. The mood inside the spacecraft is casual and stress-free. The light workload is allowing the astronauts to relax, and they begin entertaining themselves with some music. Uh, the intermittent music that we're getting is apparently coming from the spacecraft. Uh, 11 Houston, we wanted his own horn. Second, yep. We just had a little music there. Right, that was good. You can keep it coming down, Eleven. Mission Control wishes the crew a good night. They assume they won't be hearing from the astronauts again until the morning. And for ten minutes or so, the radio falls silent. And then... Go ahead, Eleven, over. Do you have any idea where the uh, is with respect to us? Neil is referring to the third stage of the Saturn V that, as you'll remember from our last episode, was nudged a safe distance away from the crew and is now following them to the moon. As they were settling in for the night, Neil saw a flashing light out one of the windows. A UFO. Neil suspects it may be the third stage of the Saturn rocket. Apollo 11, Houston, the S-4B is about 6,000 nautical miles from you now, over. Okay, thank you. So it's not the third stage. Given the distance between the two, it's highly unlikely the crew could make out what's left of the Saturn. So just what is this UFO? Well, to this day, the object they saw has never been identified. However, before the conspiracy theorists in our audience get too excited, it was almost certainly one of the four panels that protected the lunar module during launch and were jettisoned yesterday right before its extraction. 
even though those panels don't have their own propulsion source, they were already whizzing to the moon at more than 24,000 miles an hour and are going to continue to do so until an equal or opposite force acts upon them. Yeah, we got to the moon using the discoveries of a guy who wore a wig and died in 1726. Thanks, Isaac Newton. On July 15th, the day before Apollo 11 lifted off, a group of 500 protesters set up camp outside the gates of the Kennedy Space Center. They were led by Reverend Ralph Abernathy. This is the man who cradled Martin Luther King Jr.'s body in his arms as the civil rights icon died on a motel balcony in Memphis, Tennessee. NASA's Bill Berry. To a great extent, um, after Reverend King was assassinated, Abernathy sort of assumed the mantle of leadership of uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, Abernathy was very smart about the training issues that he was concerned about, which was the fact that there are a lot of people living in poverty in the United States at the time. Abernathy and his protesters were hoping to bring attention to their cause by going to the one place guaranteed to have the majority of the nation's news cameras. NASA Administrator Tom Payne said, okay, we're not going to ignore these guys. I'm going to go out and meet with Reverend Abernathy. And so there was a meeting, um, and Payne agreed that uh, there were significant problems in America and that they should be addressed. Surrounded by protesters singing We Shall Overcome and holding signs reading Hungry Kids Can't Eat Moon Rocks, Abernathy and Payne spoke for about 20 minutes. Abernathy asserted that money for spaceflight was a misplaced priority. We may go on from this day to Mars, into Jupiter, and even to the heavens beyond. But as long as racism, poverty, and hunger, and war prevail on the Earth, we as a civilized nation have failed. Payne agreed. But he also pointed out that from his perspective that you know, not going to the moon wasn't going to solve those problems. And in fact, he actually said, you know, if me not turning to switch the launch tomorrow to go to the moon could solve these problems, I would do that. Yeah, we would cancel the mission, but it's not. Payne told Abernathy he didn't know what NASA could do in the short term to combat poverty, but that the moonshot was an example of what human beings were capable of achieving if they threw themselves behind a worthwhile cause. He wanted the civil rights leader to see Apollo as just the thing to spur the nation to tackling other giant problems and to use its success as a yardstick to measure what was possible. Then he very smartly asked the Reverend Abernathy if he'd pray for the safety of the astronauts, and then he invited Abernathy and, and uh, a significant part of the, the group of people that were there for the march to come into the VIP visitor's site to watch the launch the next day. And it was a really, uh, I think, telling incident that, that tells us a lot about sort of where the space program sat in, in popular imagination at the time and how much strong leaders on both sides could make an impact on, on the, the conversation. On the eve of man's noblest venture, I am profoundly moved by the nation's achievements in space and the heroism of the three men embarking for the moon. But what we can do for space and exploration, we demand that we do for starving people. The hard truth, of course, is that we didn't use Apollo as an inspiration to eradicate poverty in America. We didn't go to the moon because scientists were demanding it. We didn't go to the moon because the public was demanding it. We went to the moon because the president pushed the program through, believing that a successful space race would earn the United States a significant victory in the Cold War. The most audacious thing humans had ever attempted was also something only the planet's richest nation could afford to try. Yes, it was deeply controversial, but it also worked and directly paved the way for the technological age in which we now find ourselves. There may come a time when America will face a similar dilemma. 
Our planet is currently staring down unprecedented challenges in climate change, dwindling resources, terrorism, and a daunting refugee crisis. Some believe the solutions to these and other problems can be found amongst the stars. The next Apollo mission may not be about winning a Cold War, but rather saving the entirety of the human race. And when that time comes, that mission may be met with the same controversy and skepticism. And why not? Our world has never looked more like 1969, plagued by war, racial discrimination, and political scandals. The same complaints made in 1969 are being made today. It doesn't look like we've learned much in the last 50 years. It's hard to care about space when grinding poverty, state-sponsored racism, violence against our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, and turning away refugees fleeing war and oppression dominates the news every night. NASA Administrator Thomas Paine was right. The moonshot was an example of what humans are capable of achieving but so is creating a sea change for every citizen on this planet. Our choice is not one or the other, it must be both. We must be bold enough and brave enough to transform life on Earth and the stars. This is Apollo Control at 61 hours, 39 minutes. Coming up in uh, less than uh, 10 seconds now, we'll be uh, crossing into the sphere of influence of the moon as the uh, moon's gravitational force becomes the a dominant effect on the spacecraft trajectory. At that point, which occurred a few seconds ago, the uh, spacecraft was at a distance of 186,437 nautical miles from Earth and 33,822 nautical miles from the Moon. Day three is over. Day four, July 19th, begins with our next episode as we spin back to tell the story of three stars. Not celestial stars, but reality stars. The astronauts and their families, who lived beneath a withering media spotlight on Earth as they trained to go to the moon. A moon that, on day four, looms large in Apollo 11's windows as our crew prepares to undertake a series of dangerous maneuvers to get into orbit. This podcast is a production of iHeartRadio and Tradecraft Studios. Executive producers, Ash Sorohia and Scott Bernstein. In association with High Five Content and executive producer, Andrew Jacobs. Amazing research and production assistance by associate producers, Brianne Shosaw and Natalie Robamed. Our incredible editor is Bill Lance. Original music by Henry Benoit. Thanks to this episode's voice actor, Tim Gordon. The experts who contributed to this episode were NASA historian Bill Barry, Grumman's Mike Lisa, and North American's Chuck Lowry. Licensing rights and clearances by Deborah Correa. This is a brand new podcast, and we're so excited to be sharing it with you. Help us spread it far and wide. Tell your friends, leave ratings and reviews, and chat about it on social media. Our hashtag is 9DIJ. We would love to hear what you think. New episodes come out every week, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brandon Fibbs. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next episode. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances. Whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities, or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death, we all want to know, what happened next? 
To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 